I'm grateful to be with you guys. It's good to see my longtime friend Mark Ricker, uh, who informed me that we go back even further than I thought we did, uh, back to Young Life in 1972. So, uh, and then Chip McDaniel, we're, I don't know if Chip is still here. Uh, Chip, I think, graded my, some of my papers at Dallas Seminary. So uh, I've, st- I've still got some issues with you on that. So we'll, uh, I won't, we won't uh, go down that road much further. Uh, <laughs> but it is fun to be here. I've, uh, we, we, we've been involved with the Kern Foundation at Talbot for the last, about the last three years. Um, they've been very, very generous to us, as I understand they have been with you guys. And it sounds like we're doing kind of a mirror image of what you guys are doing. We've been working really hard to try and get a theology of work and vocation integrated into our theological curriculum at the places where it's appropriate. Um, and we've, we have we found it to be a, a little tougher slog than we had envisioned. Uh, and I'll share some of the reasons why as we go through this. But uh, what it's underscored for me is how important it is that we get this area right uh, theologically. Um, my observation is that with the with the many many of the business professional folks that I'm around, uh, they have this sense that they are doing something less than for God's kingdom, simply because they're not getting a paycheck from a church or other Christian organization. And I think there's huge theological issues to raise with that. So I want to I want to talk about that with all of with all of you. Uh, and think together about that. And uh, we've we've had we've been down the road a bit trying to integrate this into our curriculum. Uh, I think this is an essential part of what a seminary education is about. And I understand the, the majority of, of you men and women are headed, Lord willing, for uh, teaching posts in seminaries or spots in local churches. Um, if that assumption is correct, then it, it seems to me that. This component, since the 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 past, since the next generation of pastors that we are equipping, will spend most of their time ministering to people who will spend most of their waking hours in the workplace, meaningfully connecting their spiritual life with what goes on in the marketplace, is not that's not just an add-on to what we do in the local church. That needs to be part of the fab, part of the DNA of what we do in our churches and what we equip our pastors to do. Um, so that, that, that's why, I mean, I, I come to this through a sort of deep personal experience with my dad who ran his own business for many years. Uh, later in life came to faith, sort of after my brother and I did through Young Life, but uh, came to faith. They were very involved in, a, in quite a large, prominent Southern Baptist church, in another state that will go unnamed. Uh, but the only, the, really the only connection he ever made between his, what he did in the workplace with his company and his spiritual life was the revenue that that generated so that he could give back to his local church. That's the only connection that ever got made. And he ran a business with two, roughly 250 employees for close to 30 years. He knew every one of them by name uh, and walked through his plant every, every morning for the first hour of the day, uh, greeting people. And I don't think he ever caught that there was a connection between what he did in serving Christ in the workplace and what it meant for his spiritual life. 
So that, and I, and I, th- I think he went to his grave five, five years ago thinking that's about all there was. So let me, let me start with this. Uh, this is a, a little clip. Mark Green is the, the person, he's a Brit. Uh, he's a former uh, advertising executive in London. He's got something I think pretty telling to say about uh, our subject here. The sacred secular divide is the pervasive belief that some things are really important to God and that other things aren't. So on the sacred side of the divide, there's church, prayer meetings, social action, world missions, singing carols outside Tesco's and so on. We believe these things are important to God and they are. But other human activities are at best neutral work, school, college, sport, the arts, music, unless it's got Christian words with it, leisure, sleep, rest. These sorts of things belong firmly on the secular side of life. So, on the one hand, we teach our kids what to think about Harry Potter because it's set in a school of witches and wizards. But, on the other hand, we hardly ever help them to think biblically about what they read and study day by day at school. Of course, if you ask any Christian, do you think all of your life matters to God? They're going to say, yep. But I wonder, do we really? And if we do, why is it that stories like this one abound? I teach Sunday school once a week for 45 minutes and my church asks me to come up the front so they can pray for me. For the rest of the week I'm a full-time teacher and yet as far as I can remember no one has ever offered to pray for the work that I do in schools. It's, It's as if they want to support half my profession and not the other half. It's difficult because no one would say that teaching Sunday school is more important than the work I do for the rest of the week but that's the unspoken message that I get. And if you look at it this way, I've got 45 minutes once a week with children who are generally open to the gospel, with parents who are supportive of the faith, or 45 hours a week with kids who have very little knowledge of Christianity and parents who are either as ignorant or hostile to the faith. Which context needs more prayer? Both. And that was a teacher. When was the last time we prayed for the cleaner? Look at your church's prayer diary. What's in there about people's ordinary Monday to Saturday, day to day lives? Look at your church's prayer diary. For where your prayer is, there your heart is. Think about your own praying. What do you pray about? And what do you ask other people to pray about? In reality, the sacred secular divide has had a devastating impact on two key areas of Christian life, our mission and our living. Now, think think about the church that you serve in, or have served in in the past. I'll, and I'll follow this handout that uh, is coming around roughly. Uh, so we'll, but but if, if you took a poll of people who were slugging it out in the workplace, week in and week out, how do you think they would understand their work in connection to their spiritual life? I routinely ask my seminary students how people in the workplace are perceived in the churches that they serve. I get some really interesting answers from my students. One, I, 
The most stark one I got a few years ago was a woman who said, uh, business people in my church are viewed as pockets to be picked. And I thought, God help us. Um, although, to be, I think to be fair, it, you know, many people get huge joy out of their giving and what they do to fund. And, you know, and churches take money. Mission, the mission field takes money. And uh, churches don't generate revenue generally. They collect it. Uh, I get some other positive answers like, you know, people in the workplace have administrative savvy that can help uh, with some of the administrative stuff of the church, though that gets mixed reviews from pastors about how useful that actually is. Uh, a third one that's relatively positive is they, they get an opportunity to jump on what I call the strategic soapbox, which uh, I, t- I take it what they mean by that is they get opportunities to connect meaningfully with the men and women that they work with who will likely never darken the doors of our churches. Um, and then some would say, you know, have a much broader view of this. They take a business's mission strategy, although I think even in, even in things like that, uh, the, the business itself is almost incidental. In fact, it doesn't, it doesn't really matter in many cases what the business is as long as it gets you in the door to do what's considered the main thing. Uh, but I also have students who tell me things that aren't quite so positive. They tell me things like, uh, you know, business, business people view themselves as not on the front lines of what God's doing in the world. My wife and I were at a fairly well-known Christian camp on the West Coast last summer, and we were in the evening meeting where uh, there had a very prominent pastor who was speaking to the, to the adults who were there, he was describing his relationship to a, a business person in his church, a prominent business person in his church, and quoting the business person put it like this. He said, Pastor, you're on the front lines, and I'm the supply line. Meaning that he provided the funding and the resources for the pastor who was really where the action was. And other than being, in my view, a completely bass-ackward view of the church, which assume, and I know we're, when, when we got the idea that the front lines of service was what happens inside the church building, it seems to me that's somewhat akin to the, the military recruit who comes to boot camp and says, I'm going to stay here because that's where the action is. No, the front lines are out in the world. I get, to, in, I think in essence, I get a lot of my students who will say that people in the workplace are viewed as doing something qualitatively less than for God's kingdom than men and women who are earning a paycheck from a church or other Christian organization. I don't know how many, how many of your seminary students you have here who are what we call bivocational. But I think even that term runs the risk of getting, getting us theologically off the tracks. Because for most students who are bivocational, what they do in the workplace is considered st- almost, almost always strictly a means to an end. The end being the real thing, the really important thing that they're doing in the local church. Uh, and so what I, when, I, when, I tell my, when I get my, my seminary students who say things like, you know, I left my business to serve the Lord full time. Or I left my business to go into professional ministry or vocational ministry. I had, a, had a pa- one of the pastors in my church said he you know, felt a call to enter professional ministry. I thought, wait a minute, I'm not too sure about that. 
Or, you know, somebody says, um, you know, the, the halftime. Some, some of us in here are old enough to appreciate the halftime thing. Yes, familiar with that work, Bob Buford's work, where at halftime of your life, where you presumably have been there, done that in the workplace, and your kids are up and out and off the payroll, and I'm not quite sure why mine are not quite off the payroll yet, but <laughs> that, that's another subject. Uh, but you, he said, the point he made, he said that the second half of your life, you move from success to significance. And in the second half of your life, you are about kingdom work. Well, I've often wondered what he would say to the business person who might parallel the experience of uh, Tom Chappell, who was the founder of Tom's of Maine. The, it's a personal care products company in the Northeast who took a year off from, Harvard, uh, from his business, went to Harvard Divinity School. And we might say that might have been part of the problem in the first place. But he took a year's sabbatical to reassess what God was calling him to do and decided to go back into his business. And I wonder if somebody might say, well, he sort of missed the halftime concept. What it, and, and I don't know about you guys here, but uh, we have a, at Talbot, we have a disproportionate number of students of Asian descent. Roughly 40% of our students come from some sort of Asian ethnicity. And about a full, a full 25% of our students are Korean. I've been walking around campus. I haven't seen a lot of students of Asian descent here, so I don't know if you have many of those. But what we found is that there's, there's something deeply cultural about this hierarchy that puts pastors and professors at the top of the pile. Uh, and they've, I think they have, in essence, baptized a part of their culture uh, and called it Christian. And so the students we have coming from Asian backgrounds, with the exception of a few, uh, largely view the pastorate as being the best thing, not, not only that they could do, but that anyone could do in terms of their service to the kingdom. And so what, what, what's occurred to me over the years of thinking about this with students is that they have a, they have a theology of vocation and flourishing that's, not so much incorrect as it is incomplete. And so what we tried to do is we tried to fill out their view of their vocation and particularly how that connects with the notion of human flourishing. So let me just suggest a couple of things about this and then we can, we can take off on any of this that you wish because uh, we'll, we'll leave plenty of time for questions. Obviously, Work has instrumental value. Nobody debates that. Uh, it's it's the, the notion that our work and vocation have intrinsic value in serving God and serving Christ that I think is the more, uh, not sure it's a controversial notion in theory, but I think the way we talk about this and the way we practice this and model this in our educational institutions and in our churches betrays our theological views. So let me just, just very briefly, if you want to pursue some of this, you can. Uh, we can do that. Obviously, our theology of work begins at creation with the notion that work being ordained prior to the entrance of sin. Now, most of my, most of our, I would expect most of our seminary students to get this right. But if you ask uh, the same question to groups of people in the marketplace, you get a decidedly mixed review. I asked them, when did God ordain work? In Genesis 2 or 3? And the, the, our seminary students hopefully will get that correct, that God ordained work in Genesis 1 and 2, specifically in 
But if you ask marketplace folks, uh, there's, there's a lot more ambiguity to their answer on that. And I would suggest to you most of them treat their work as though it were ordained in Genesis 3, not 2. Most of the marketplace people I know view their work as something akin to their penalty and can hardly wait till they can amass enough money so that they can get out of what they're doing now and do something. Oops. Uh, I didn't think I was rocking and rolling that hard yet. Uh, to do something else, I mean, anything else. And so when I remind them that, that, the, that both the bookends of biblical history, at both paradises, at creation and at the Lord's return, work will be a prominent feature. The prophets, for example, talk about the, the kingdom and its consummation as beating swords into what? Plowshares and spears into pruning hooks. It's not as though the implements of war will be done away with. It's that the implements of war will be transformed into the implements of productive work, which suggests that at both paradises of biblical history, we will be working. Now, I'm not too, to be fair, I'm not too sure about the getting a paycheck part, though I'm inclined to think that we'll still have trade and exchange and mediums of exchange when the kingdom is consummated. But I, you know, I could be wrong about that. Um, so that our, our, I mean, our work contributes, I mean, is part of the creation mandate, but it also contributes, it's in continuity to the transformation, to the ultimate redemption of the world that God is in the business of accomplishing in the here and now. So second, I'd say work, was, work is ordained as part of the dominion mandate for human beings. I would suggest, to borrow the words of the economist Sir Brian Griffiths, that the dominion mandate is translated in economist terms as responsible wealth creation. Where human beings, through general revelation and common grace, are unlocking what God has embedded into his creation, the wisdom he's embedded into his creation. And the degree to which an honest, and that's an important qualification, an honest profit is made is the degree to which the dominion mandate is being fulfilled. Right? Now, there are lots of things that are where they're dishonest profits, and there are certain industries that are obviously way outside the bounds on that. Um, now, I, I, most, most importantly, it seems to me, is that work, work has intrinsic value because it's a part of, of who God is and therefore a part of what it means to be human beings made in his image. I mean, think about this. In Genesis 1, God roars right out of the chute working. He rests from his work at the end of Genesis 1. Throughout the Old Testament, he is described as being at work to sustain and maintain his creation. And Jesus seems to me, in one of his strongest claims to deity, in fact, the Pharisees took up stones to stone him immediately after he said this, claimed that on the Sabbath he was working as his heavenly Father was still working. That was, I mean, that, if you read in the Gospel of John, that was an inflammatory statement that Jesus made about his, one of his strongest claims to deity. Uh, and I, I think the, the, way, uh, the way Chuck Colson puts this, I think he, 
he had it right when he said that we are, there's something fundamental about us that, that makes us hardwired for work. As he put it, it's part, it's part of our spiritual DNA. Or as the novelist Dorothy Sayers put it, that work is not what one does to live, but the thing one lives to do. The medium in which he offers or she offers himself or herself to God. I think that's, I understand, I understand the image of God as primarily a status, not in terms of specific functions. And as, as a mark of our dignity, we represent something important about the Creator God in our work. I think this, I think this is one of the reasons, not, not the whole, but one of the reasons why Solomon in Ecclesiastes can describe work the way he does. It says in Ecclesiastes 2.24, a person can do nothing better than to eat and drink and find satisfaction in their own work. This too, I see, is from the hand of God, for without him who can eat or find enjoyment. Okay, and that refrain is repeated numerous times throughout the book. Uh, again, down in 3.12, I'll just read this one, not, not all of them. Uh, I know that there's nothing better for people than to be happy and to do good while they live, that each may eat and drink and find satisfaction in all their toil, this is the gift of God. Now, Solomon, of course, points out that work is cursed in addition and does not provide the, uh, as I would put it, the, the box top that makes the jigsaw pieces of, of, of life all fit together nicely. But he does, I think, suggest something quite consistent with both the, the dominion mandate, the fact that uh, work is instituted prior to the entrance of sin, and that it's a part of who we are in God's image. In the New Testament, too, it seems to me that Paul describes this really nicely in Colossians chapter 2. I'm sorry, Colossians 3, beginning in verse 23. If you notice the context here, who specifically he's speaking to, it says in 22, Slaves, obey your earthly masters in everything and do it not only when their eye is on you to curry favor, but with sincerity of heart and reverence for the Lord. Whatever you do, which I think arguably is a, that's a fairly big tent over all of life. Work at it with all your heart as working for the Lord, not for human masters, since you know you will receive an inheritance from the Lord as a reward. And then I think parentheses here, in whatever you do, it's the Lord Christ whom you are serving. Right? Now, recall, this was written to slaves, who I think arguably had the most mind-numbing, meaningless grunt work that was their daily lot that you can imagine in the first century. Yet it seems to me that Paul affirms that even the work of slaves has the dignity that is attached with their service to Christ. I would suggest that, that it is their service, that is, it's their ministry, which is, by the way, service is the most, the most common translation of that term, diakonia. I have a friend of mine who illustrates this really nicely, um, and I think he, he got this just right, where he and his wife were coming back. I said this on video this morning, so I hope this, got, this is being captured twice. Um, but he and his wife were coming back from a vacation overseas. His wife, make a long story short, she collapsed on the jetway, completely un unconscious. They rushed her to a neurosurgeon. 
Turns out she had a small tumor about the size of a quarter at the base of her brain. It was causing black, causing blackouts. Uh, they rushed her into surgery. Uh, same day, brand new technology at the time, the gamma knife, which excised the tumor, outpatient surgery. She went home that day. And just, I mean, that's what I, that's what it's unbelievable stuff. And I remember my friend in reflecting on all of this was marveling at all of the occupations that had to come together to facilitate his wife's healing. And he was particularly taken with the, the team, probably a team, who wrote the imaging software that guided the surgeon exactly where the tumor was. And you know what he said about that person? He said, he said, I'm sure glad that that person who wrote that software didn't decide to leave their business to go serve the Lord full time. And I thought, that I think that's right. Because he saw, I think he saw that there's a, there's a ministry, a service to Christ in the very work itself. I love the phrase, the way Dorothy Sayers tells this. She said, when, when, uh, when carpenters come to faith, I'm paraphrasing this, she said, normally we tell them not to get drunk on the weekends you know, and show up for church. Right? Instead, she said, what we should first tell them is that they should make good tables as part of their craft, as part of their ministry. Now, I think to be, to be clear about this, I will ask uh, people in the workplace, I'll say, you know, tell me about your ministry in the workplace. And almost without exception, they, they will say things like, uh, Why, every once in a while I have a chance to share my faith with a co-worker. I pray regularly for my co-workers. Uh, you know, I'll take, I'll take dinner to, some, to a co-worker who, you know, they just had a baby or, you know, had a death in the family or, you know, I'll, I'll be a listening ear if somebody's life is falling apart. You know, all that, all, you know, the stuff we normally talk about. It's, a lot of it's what I would call doing church stuff in the workplace. And then I point out to them that all these things you are describing are the things that you are doing when you are not doing your job. And if you do too much of that, you're actually at risk of doing something quite unethical, right? Like it's called theft of time from your employer. And see, most people, most people that the students you're going to teach eventually, most people who they will minister to, the next generation of pastors, and the people who are in the marketplace in our churches, don't think about the very work they do as part of their service to Christ. After all, why does the Scripture tell us to do it with excellence? Why does it, the Scripture tell us to work as though Christ were our boss? I've always gotten a kick out of the as though part of that. Because Paul clarifies that to say, it is the Lord Christ whom you are serving. And I would suggest by the very work you do in addition to all of those other things that we rightly encourage people to do in the workplace. That's why I think that we're, we're better off, in my view, seeing the term, using the term ministry as service. And there's, I mean, I will just go kind of quickly through some of the rest of this. But I actually think the way we talk about this makes a very big difference. Because in Acts chapter 6, for example, the term diakonia is used both 
to describe the, the administration, in fact, the NIV translates that as the administration of, of food to the Greek-speaking widows and the ministry of Paul and the apostles of preaching and prayer. Both of those are described as diakonia. Now, I think both, you know, both were specific to the unique callings that the apostles and the, quote, deacons, which is a terrible translation for diakonia. I wish we would we should get away from that. Because uh, that implies, I think that implies something not, not quite as high of stature as elders uh, or pastors, but that's another subject. Uh, but I guess what I would suggest is that the, the very work itself is part of their service to Christ. That's why we have a big banner in our business school at Biola University that says business as ministry. It's about, it's about the size of that screen that hangs down. You can't miss it when you walk in the door. But I think, I think they got it basically right. And, and I think about the ways they could have said this. They could have said ministry in business, right, which is more, I think, suggests the, the church stuff that we do in the workplace. Or they could have said ministry and business, which is more of that sacred-secular dichotomy that Mark Green spoke about. But I think they, they, did, they got it right, that it's business as a part of their service. This is why we tell, we tell our business students that accounting is ministry. You know, finance is ministry. Marketing is ministry. I tell my son's a film, my oldest son's a filmmaker. Filmmaking is ministry. It's part of your service to Christ. Now, it's not all of it because you have service, you have other arenas of service in the local church, in your family, in your neighborhood, I think actually around the world. You have arenas of service uh, that we are called. We are called to multiple vocations to be simultaneously pursued. I wouldn't. I wouldn't. I'm not sure. I see them as a list of priorities, but a, rather a set of simultaneous relationships and responsibilities. And I would. Well, I guess what I would suggest as for the starting place on this would be that our language needs to reflect how we view this theologically. So I would, I would urge us to, in fact, I, got, I, have, I have a theological penalty box in my classroom, figuratively speaking, um, where people who, whose language reflects, I think, a theology that's not quite right uh, end up. And I'll, I keep a tally of the times I catch my students on this. But I would, I would suggest that the terms... Full-time ministry. Uh, think about how the think about how the, the marketplace person hears that. As applied to pastors and missionaries, which it usually is, the business person in our churches hears that as though they are in either, at best part-time ministry or at mo oh, at, at worst no-time ministry. Neither of those things, it seems to me, are true theologically. I would I would suggest that. Every time we use the term ministry, as I've tried to do, I don't always get this right, but I've tried to do this, there you have a qualifier attached to it that designates the specific arena of service. So, you, know, you men and women are in academic ministry. Our pastors are in pastoral ministry. Uh, you know, if, you're, if you're an evangelist, you're, you're in evangelistic ministry. 
But I would say also if you're, in a business, if you're a business person, you're in auditing ministry. Or you're in computer software ministry. Uh, and all of those things, I think, I, see, I think we've lost the notion of service that goes with our work. And I think that's a cultural thing that we've lost largely because of the skepticism that business in any way serves anything but itself. Right? Now, that's on business for that. But it seems to me that the recognition that business framed in a Christian worldview is intended to serve the good of the community and provide meaningful work. And it's not just about its own, its own profit. But I think we've lost some of that. Um, and I would, I guess, I would suggest that we, you know, we sort of, we excise the term secular jobs from our vocabulary. It seems to me if we, if we view theologically that all of life under the providence of God is sacred, and I think Mark Green was right about that, we use that sacred-secular distinction to say, to, to make value judgments about things that are important to God or not so much. Um, and I guess I, what, I would, what I would suggest is that, and this is deeply rooted in my Asian students, but that hierarchy of callings I think is inconsistent with the way the Bible views the intrinsic value of work in serving Christ. Now, it may be that for, for individuals in a subjective sense, serving as a pastor may be better for that particular person because it's a better use of their specific mix of gifts and passions and skills. And it, and it may reflect a sense, of, a sense of God's calling and opening doors to them. But I don't think that holds in, an, in a more objective sense that it's better in an absolute sense than what people are doing in, in the marketplace. And I think the other thing I think we should disabuse ourselves of is that where someone gets a paycheck from is, I, I think that there's, there's, no ne- there's no necessary connection between that and a person's uh, level of spiritual maturity or depth of spiritual commitment. I, I mean, I, surely we have seen enough high-profile pastoral moral failures to disabuse ourselves of that notion. But I've had, I mean, I remember when I, when I was a college student involved in a, there's a particular parachurch ministry that had joining their staff as the highest level of spiritual maturity. But I, and I think, I wondered, how did, the, how did the business majors hear that? They automatically heard that as, the, as doing something less than for God's kingdom. And I, I mean, I would suggest even, even the, way we, the, way, the way we commission people in our churches, reflects, it reinforces this hierarchy. We do this at Biola. I'll pick on my own institution for a minute. We do this all the time when we commission teams of, you know, short-term missions teams. I suspect most of your churches do this too. And, and we commission them, and rightly so. But we send out these teams in the summer all the time. But we don't do anything for our film students who are going that summer to do internships just 30 minutes north of our campus at NBC and Universal Studios and Sony Pictures. I would suggest, arguably, 
those are just as foreign a culture as you get anywhere overseas and just as challenging steps of faith as you get anywhere overseas. But we don't do anything to commission them. And Mark, I think Mark Green's example of what we pray for in our churches and, and what we pray for publicly in our churches is really illustrative of that. Okay, how are we doing on time here? We, we quit at 1.30? Okay, let me just say a, cu- a couple other things and then we'll open it up for a, a couple questions. One, one question that often gets raised is, how did we get here to where, I mean, if the Bible teaches what it does, how do we get to a place where we are today? Well, I think as I, and this is going to be, you know, I am not a church historian on this, so this is probably needs additional nuancing, uh, and I'm willing to be smacked around on that. So, But it seems to me where a lot of this began to get traction was the Aristotelian distinction between the, the active and contemplative life. And the contemplative life that Aristotle saw as clearly, if not the highest good, at least part of the means to the highest good. I think what that ref- what that ended up cashing out as is a widespread ancient skepticism about the value of commerce and business and trade. That was part of the active life that actually, in Aristotle's view, was necessary to have a modicum of goods, but otherwise actually inhibited a person from enjoying the good life. Now, I think there were other things about the, the first century culture that contributed to this skepticism about commerce and business, namely the zero-sum view of economic life, where there was a, a more, much more of a necessary connection between economic winners and losers than there is today. And I think, this, for example, I think this explains why the prophets were so incensed at the economic injustices that were done. Because m- most people in the ancient world could not become wealthy without doing that at the expense of someone else. And so most of the wealth, not all of it, but the vast majority of wealth that was accumulated was done so by patently immoral means that involved things like theft, extortion, oppression, and taking advantage of the vulnerable. I think this may be, I I could be wrong about this, but I think this is one of the reasons that Jesus made the statement that it's harder for a rich man to enter the kingdom than a camel to go through the eye of a needle. Because there were so few morally legitimate ways of accumulating wealth available to a person, which is also the reason I think the Scripture has very little to say about legitimate ambition. Because there were very few ways to raise your socioeconomic standing without engaging in severe faith-compromising immoral behavior. Where this eventually ended, it seems to me, was a very sharp dichotomy between the monastery and the marketplace. Although, to be fair, there were a number of these monasteries were actually very successful businesses, too. Uh, but the, the idea, essentially, was that priests, nuns, and monks had callings, and everybody else basically had jobs to support them. Now, my Catholic brothers and sisters will say that that's a bit simplistic a notion. I get that. Um, but they, they can't deny that there was a very sharp dichotomy between the monastery, which was sacred, and the marketplace, which was secular. And in Catholic theology, and this is, what, this is why the Reformation so drove a stake into the heart of that, 
actually being cloistered in Catholic theology contributed to your fitness to inherit salvation. Which is the real thing that the reformers so, I think, correctly objected to. Now, I, th- I think inadvertently, while doing away with that idea, with the, the idea of justification by faith alone and the priesthood of all believers, Luther, particularly Luther, may have inadvertently created a new hierarchy. Right? Now, Luther was very clear when he said our works, which included our day-to-day work, contributed nothing to our justification and therefore clerical church work was not in any way superior to what took place in the marketplace for one, for meriting one's salvation. But Luther was very clear that even though God did not need our good works, our neighbor did. And a very clear part of loving your neighbor as yourself was the mandate to do your work well. Now, unfortunately, I think Luther put our daily work under the category of the left hand of God, not the right hand. And I, in my view, inadvertently created, planted the seeds of a renewed hierarchy that I think in our day, influenced, I think, as we have been by what I would call an evangelical pietism, we have, it's, it's not meriting your salvation that we're after, we've replaced that with the notion of things that have eternal significance. And I think we have misapplied the statement of the, the, the uh, longtime, uh, I believe he was Presbyterian, theologian Elton Trueblood, who said that the only two things that last forever are the Word of God and the souls of human beings. I think we, well, we have taken from that is that therefore the only two things that have eternal significance are investments in those two arenas. But I'm not, I don't think that necessarily follows from that, that those are the only two things that have eternal significance. Because if you think about it, if it's true that what the work that the business person does in the workplace is their service to God, analogous to what pastors are doing in the, in the local church in service to God, then it seems to me that the work that men and women do in the workplace also has eternal significance that I I don't hear hardly ever recognized, at least not in my church. Now, the fact that I never hear it recognized actually makes me nervous. And there's, as you know, there's often good reason why you don't hear a lot of ideas put forth. Um, But it, it, it seems to me that we've, um, we've 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 gone a long way, I think, toward recapturing some of this in a renewed hierarchy today, and that's what I think is so damaging to the uh, to the marketplace person who comes into the marketplace, uh, thinking that what they're doing is somehow less than for God's kingdom. Okay, now let me take let me take just a short side detour or extension off of this and move from work into economics. What are, the, some, what are the conditions necessary for this view of work to flourish? I think has a lot to do with our views overall of economics and human flourishing. So let, me just, let me just throw out a couple of comments here about 
why, why, why pastors particularly need to know something about economics to fill out their view of human flourishing. Right? Let me suggest, first of all, that... Uh, um, let me get back to my play. I think one of the most important reasons for a grasp not only of work but also economics is so, so we can accurately teach and preach the Bible. Most of the, most of the Bible was set in a, in a specific context for economic life. Um, and, and I think understanding that the view of economic life that was, uh, was the, the predominant one of most of the ancient world, is really important. I think we miss we, we run the risk of misconstruing that because we 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 draw an incorrect conclusion conclusion from correct premises. We our premises I think are right that the fundamentally the matters matters of economics are matters of the heart, and that it's right to assume that the heart has not fundamentally changed since the time the Bible was written. And that therefore, the conclusion we draw is we can directly apply much of the biblical teaching on economic life to today. And what we miss is how different the world of the economy was in biblical times as compared to today. I mean, it would be hard to imagine two contexts that would be more different. Okay? Now, I, mentioned, I mentioned just a minute ago the... Uh, the zero-sum view of economics, which I think was characteristic of the ancient world, where there's that's, that's the view that says there's there's one pie, the size is basically fixed, and if I get a bigger piece, then you get a smaller one. But since about since roughly 1800, in fact, I'll show you a little video on this here in just a second. Um, since roughly 1800. In fact, economic growth historically is shaped like a hockey stick where the, the, the handle, the long part, goes along for thousands of years. And then since 1800, the blade goes sharply up if you chart time and economic growth. Since 1800, it has exploded in prosperity and legions of the poor have been released from poverty by participation in the in the, the global marketplace. Now, what that means is today, the, I think the zero-sum view of economic life is basically obsolete today because the size of the pie can get increasingly larger and larger, and you can have you can even have disproportionate shares, while those people who are getting the smallest shares are still getting relatively larger ones than what they had before. In fact, if you look at if you look at economic growth compared to not not just the price of things, but the availability of things today, I mean, we are far better off than our grandparents were. Even though, in terms of per capita income, you know that, that might it might have actually decreased. Now, what that means today is that you can both do good and do well financially at the same time. And those two things were, were somewhat mutually exclusive in biblical times. It was very difficult to do good without being immoral and to do well financially at the same time. I, th- I think um, 
no, there, well, let me, let me leave it at that. If you want to pursue this further, uh, we can do that. I think the, the, sort of the other part of this, I think not only to preach and teach the Bible accurately, but I think to apply it correctly and to provide the kind of critique of economic life today that a prophetic stance of Scripture demands. So, for example, uh, it's, very, it's very common today to say things like the rich are getting richer and the poor are getting poorer. That's generally taken to be a statement about inequality, but often hidden, and many make it is not so hidden, is the, the cause and effect relationship between those two. That the rich getting richer is what is causing the poor to become poor. Right? Now, you would, I mean, with a, I think with a rudimentary knowledge of economics, you would sniff that out as a, as a zero-sum framework for economic life. Which is true in some parts of the world, I say some parts of the developing world today, that's still somewhat true. But in the developed world, particularly information age economies, that, that is a view of economic life that is largely obsolete. All right, so a second reason I think economics is important, I think it is part of the doctrine of creation. And those of you guys that are working in theology or working in Old Testament, I would really encourage you to give some thought to what are the economic principles and practices that, that, are, that follow out of the dominion mandate over creation. We see very few really well done theologically, but also economically literate uh, work has been done connecting economics and the dominion mandate, that, that creation mandate of Genesis 1 and 2. And I would, I would encourage you guys, some of you guys working in theology, to give some thought to that. See, I think, I think uh, well, let me, I'll just leave it at that. We can pursue that for questions. Uh, a third, I think, a third reason that economics is important is so churches can productively help the poor. Uh, we've got my, my friend Chris Brooks, pastors in the inner city of Detroit. And he has concluded that if he didn't understand economics, he couldn't minister effectively in the inner city. Because so much of what his preaching on discipleship involves has to do with their economic life. In fact, he's, he's connected the fruit of the Spirit with somebody's employability. In fact, he said, think about, think about what it would mean to employ someone whose life is characterized by the deeds of the flesh. And how long do you think that person's going to last in the workplace? Wouldn't you rather have someone employed whose life is characterized by the fruit of the Spirit? I think that's not even close. Now, obviously, that's not the reason you pursued the fruit of the Spirit. But it is, I think, a, a benefit of our discipleship that has an economic bent to it. That's really important that we get that. Uh, I think pa pastors need to know something about economics to appreciate prices, profit, and wages for what they are. Right? Profit is simply a market signal that tells businesses that they're using their resources efficiently. Easy for you to say, efficiently. Uh, 
uh, you know, profit is doesn't. I mean, I'll put it this way: um, profit is a bit like food. We all have to eat in order to live, just as a company's got to have profit to survive. But if the goal of our life was to eat, Dickie's Barbecue notwithstanding, we'd have we'd say there's something seriously wrong with that picture. And similar for a company whose sole goal is the pursuit of profit. But without, I think without some knowledge of economics, um, I think we're, we have a tougher time addressing some of these issues that relate to the marketplace. Then finally, I would suggest that since it makes sense that since the vast majority of their waking hours of the people we will minister to in our churches and who our students will minister to do so in the marketplace that that would be the primary crucible for their spiritual formation. Not, and I'm not downplaying the hour or two that they're in our churches every week, but the primary place we should expect God to be working them over spiritually is in the marketplace. It seems to me our job as pastors and as professors training the next generation of pastors is to help our marketplace folks be attentive to how God is shaping them spiritually in the marketplace. Now, I think that involves our, our pastors and our seminary students going out and meeting their people in their places of work, talking to them about the ethical challenges that they face in their workplace, talking to them openly about the challenges they face to their faith in the workplace, so that... In fact, you better. In fact, if you start to preach on this, you better have a cardiologist in the church, because they're likely to have heart failure if they actually hear one of our pastors talk with relevance about the marketplace. But it, I think it starts with meeting business people on their terms, on their turf, and then eventually we commission them publicly in our churches to their ministries in the workplace. So we don't end up having people feeling like second-class spiritual citizens simply by virtue of where they're getting a paycheck from. Amen? That's good enough for now. Why don't we, I've taken too much time. So let me, let's open it for questions here, and uh, we'll go, from, go on from well, there. Let's thank Dr. Ray for his talk. And now, as is the normal order of business, it's time for Q&A. Remember the ground rules. The ground rules is that we go at the jugular of the idea, not the person, which is always good. So if you have a question, please do introduce yourself, uh, give your name, and then the question. John. I teach philosophy students, so I'm used to just about anything. So, <laughs> Dr. Wright, thank you so much. This was a fantastic, uh, very uh, thought-provoking and uh, needed just a quick question. I think, I mean, I know perhaps some of your answer, but um, maybe you could fill it out. Um, in talking to people in my church before, one of the big questions for them in seeing their work as service to God is how. How, how am I as an accountant to see what I do 40 hours a week to see that as part of, you know, beyond the part of you know, you're serving your employer yeah, and beyond the, all of those things. A lot of times they have a hard time, you know, like the teacher, like the person in the video, they know they're pouring all those hours into these little kids, and so they're trying to give, you know, as much as they can build a 
Christian worldview, but if I'm an accountant, I'm working with numbers, they have a hard time seeing that. And so how would you help them make the, connect, the connections? Yeah, I would, you know, I would try, I, I would take the different occupations and I just, I just start to spell out, you know, what is the ministry of accounting? And I would, I would, for one, I would start speaking of their work as their ministry. That's the language I'd want them to be comfortable with, for one. But I would spell out. I remember I was at a, I, I was was at a conference with my friend Daryl Bach from Dallas Seminary. We grew up together, so we go way back. And he had a whole list of occupations, and he said, "Tell me about the ministry of banking." And I said, "Anybody who lived through the financial crisis should not have difficulty with that one." Because if credit freezes, the economy freezes. And so what, they, what they're doing in banking or accounting or whatever it is, if you can help them see how that serves the community, how that adds value to their individual customers. Now, it's, it's, that's, it's in addition to how they, how they do their work, you know, with integrity, you know, with you know, full-on Christ-likeness. Um, but if, if we can help them highlight the service component. So I would say for, for accounting, for example, what the auditor is doing is ensuring that when a company reports its numbers, it's doing so truthfully and accurately so that the people who lend money to this company, the people who invest in this company, the 401Ks of average people all over the world who invest in this company aren't being defrauded. Um, I'd say that's a huge service to ensure that the company is actually, that's what auditors do, to make sure the company reports its its financial uh, past and future with integrity. And so they are a part of that. Um, and so part of this is, I think, helping people see the big, the big picture of how this serves the community. And I think we take a lot of this for granted. And see, I actually think our view of business assumes that they don't do this. Because what's the phrase that you hear over and over again? That business has a responsibility to what? To give back to the community. Right? That assumes... That business is in the value extraction business. And that to even the balance, they have to somehow give back. Well, I think that premise is false. And that for the most part, businesses that are value extracting are not long-term sustainable. And generally, they are not very profitable. The ones that are profitable, again, and using profit as a market signal, are the ones who are engaged in providing needed goods and services that actually serve a purpose. Uh, and the ones that don't usually are the ones who don't stay in business. Does that, does that help? Okay. Questions? Hi, Scott. Mark Lederbach. Um, just doing a little follow-up on John's question here to kind of tag in there. Maybe a two-part, depending on how you answer the first part. What I'm hearing you say is that perhaps we're deficient on our creation order ethic, that there's just simply goodness and work 
that we need to connect on there. The, the question part for me is, um, we here at Southeastern, we use the language of Great Commission Seminary all the time. And so if we bring in Matthew 28, 18 through 20 into this right. paradigm, we're thinking about going to all nations and making disciples. So could you help us connect mm -hmm. the work to the discipleship element yeah. of the Great Commission and then maybe tie you that bet. back into the, to the Genesis 1? You bet. I mean, for one, I think it's just what, what I mentioned just at the end here about uh, just simply by virtue of the time spent in the workplace, we ought to expect that what goes on in the workplace is that's the primary crucible for our discipleship. But I think I would suggest the part of the Great Commission that we often and maybe understate is the part at the end where it also says, says, go, make disciples of all nations, and what? Teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And I don't think you can get very far in the teaching of Jesus without seeing the value placed on work, uh, particularly the value placed on a person, in general, a person's interaction with the surrounding culture and community. I mean, I think what we've missed, and this, is good, this might be part to answer your question, I think what we've missed is how our, or what we've missed emphasizing is how our work helps us love our neighbor. And that, I mean, in fact, I think the New Testament encapsulates the great commands with that one. You know, Paul says the whole law is summed up in this one command to love your neighbor as yourself and so i would connect it explicitly with the teaching them to observe all that i have commanded and then there's a you know there's a huge teaching in jesus that reflects the prophets on you know doing justice in terms of economics i think part of what maybe we miss on this too is that in the first century you know economic life and religious life particularly for the religious leaders that was bound up pretty tightly together. And so when Jesus cleansed the temple, for example, he was not only making a statement, as you know, about sacri the sacrificial system, he was also uh, putting a st he was also basically shutting down a very profitable business at the same time. Um, so, yeah, go, go ahead. Just to follow up then, um, Milton Friedman's famous article, The Social Responsibility of Businesses to Maximize Profits, um, landmark piece and it shapes much of capitalism's point of view on that. So can you speak about that kind of point of view and how you're dovetailing or not with him? I'm, I'm, I'm for the most part not because uh, I think the, the contrasting view known as a stakeholder view more reflects that there are multiple uh, there are multiple stakeholders that have an interest in what a business does not just the shareholders um, in a very, on a very limited scope, I think Friedman might be right that, for example, a company, a public company, a private company, it's the owner's money, and they can do with it whatever they want. But a public company that takes the investor's money for charitable contributions is actually guilty of, at worst, taxation without representation, and maybe even worse than that, theft. Right? So I think maybe when it comes to doing positive goods, Friedman might be on to something. But when it comes to avoiding harm, bringing harm to the community, there the stakeholder view I think has it right because fundamentally we have prior 
moral commitments not to harm our community that you don't get a pass on simply by virtue of going to work. So you are still, you are still a, um, you know, your own individual moral agent, even though you are part of a company. Um, but the, the idea, I think, you know, Friedman's idea basically that the shareholders are all that matters, I think, is incomplete. Uh, although I wouldn't want to underestimate all the good that a company does simply by virtue of making a profit. You know, they employ people, they pay their taxes, they produce a useful product or service. All of that, I think, is probably understated today. Thank you, Grant Taylor. Um, I have an idea that hopefully has a question in it. Related to John's and... It sounds like a speech prior to yeah, a question. Yeah, that's right. I don't want to be the guy at the conference that asked a 10-minute question, but um, we need a better theology of, of lots of things in your speech, in your talk. Uh, creation, the image of God. So my thought is we need a better anthropology, a better theology of humans, because to connect it to what we do in the church, we preach, the church I'm in, I think it's an excellent church I love my pastor and he does an excellent job week to week to the heart uh, to the affections which is on the uptick in northern American evangelicalism but we often it kind of leaves lacking sometimes the the fact that I'm a body and a mind as well uh, and so when I go into the workplace or my neighbor goes into the workplace we still think they still think that good works are the affections of the heart so my attitude toward my boss, my attitude toward my coworker, and that sort of thing. And that tends to lack the, so then what do I do? Um, does that tie together? Do you see the, the need for it a better does. anthropology? Yeah, see, I think what I, what I wonder is when the Bible talks about our good works. Say, for example, in, a, in a, the end of Ephesians 2, it says we are created in Christ Jesus for good works. Why do we... I mean, I never hear that applied to what you do in the workplace. But I, I actually think the majority of our good works are what we do at work. And I think, I think the majority of our good works, be a little strong, but, I mean, but maybe what we do in the very work itself. That's right. That's right. And so, yeah, I... I mean, I think that I like I like your idea on that. Thank you, Dr. Ray. Should, Jason Rumbo. You, you should write that down. <laughs> <laughs> uh, quick question for you um, in regards to Ephesians. I, I doubt that it will be a quick. It, it will be quick. Uh, It'll be quick. I doubt. Um, that, in regards to Ephesians four, stating that um, Christ gives the various offices of the church to the church for the equipping of the saints for the working of the ministry. Um, other than For works of service. For works of service. Um, in, despite of changing our rhetoric a bit and, and redefining or maybe reminding people of what the ministry really is, what are some very practical things that the quote-unquote clergy, I don't really want to go down that road, but Fair the way enough. we have traditionally defined clergy, what are some practical things that we can do in an effort to equip the saints to that end 
Yeah. Well, one, one is we can, we can find out more about the world that they live in so that when we preach and teach, we might actually have a shot at applying it to something that would have relevance to the workplace. Uh, and I, do, I, think most, I think most executives would fall out of their seats in our churches if we actually preached something that recognized, that it's all, just, you don't even have to solve it, just recognize that they face ethical dilemmas every day and, and had, a, had a grasp of what some of those are. So, if, so that's why I say, you know, the first thing I want to do, I need to spend time in their offices with them. I need to spend time over coffee with them. I need to, you know, I need to tag along with them. You know, sort of like hospital chaplains tag along with physicians to learn. Um, and so I just, I, need, I just need to know what, what are the things that they face? I think we'd be blown away by the kinds of ethical dilemmas that our marketplace people are dealing with week in and week out. Uh, and that they, uh, see, I think what most of them do is they end up compartmentalizing their life in the workplace. And it's church on, or work on Monday, church on Sunday, and there's this huge gap between the two. And the reason that gap is there may in part because they don't want to put this together. But I think for the most part, that gap is there because we haven't helped them with this. So first, it, it involves really learning about what their world is like. Second, I would invite marketplace people into my preaching. And I would, if you really, if you really have courage about this, uh, what I would do, I'd take you know, two or three representative folks from different, you know, different occupations and sit them, on, sit them up on stage with me when I'm, when I'm done with my preaching and to say, now, you're, you're working, uh, you know, you're, you're in a janitorial services company. Okay? Tell me how this works in your workplace. Okay? And give them some advance notice so they can think about it. Or, you know, you're, you know, you're working in, uh, maybe you, you, know, you manage a, you know, a golf course or something, you know, or manage a small business. Okay? Tell me how this works in your specific workplace. Okay? So we, I, I would, or if you don't do that, you know, at least, you know, confer, have, a, have a, a set group of marketplace people that you regularly run your sermon ideas through to get application. I think that, that would really help, in my view. And I think, I mean, I think you ought to just get them up here right in front with you. And then after, after they do this, then you ought to lay hands on them and commission them to their ministry in the workplace. That, does that answer your question? Yes, okay. Other questions? I'd like to ask one if I could. God, I'm, ho- I'm hoping I haven't bored everybody. Oh, no, it's been excellent. Yes, Thank uh, you very much. Especially after that barbecue lunch, I would, I would never have fed my students that lunch and expected them to pay attention. <laughs> <laughs> it was the uh, banana pudding that put everybody yeah, over the exactly edge. Yeah, that's exactly right. Um, so thank you very much for the talk. It was uh, very helpful. Um, I wonder if you could unpack a little bit more the idea of human flourishing. Um, the idea of doing your work for the glory of God, whatever that work might be, makes good sense. 
But your, your, the title of your talk had that flourishing mm -hmm. component. And, of course, that's a very contested notion. Yes. What does flourishing actually mean? So I'd be interested in your, your thoughts on that. You want me to, you want me to do this at 1.30? <laughs> uh, well, I take, I take flourishing to be, to be functioning as God in, intends us to function in, in all aspects of our life. Okay. Now that I know that begs a lot of other questions, right. but I think that means uh, that that we we function according to how God's designed us in the workplace, okay, in our families, in the different arenas in which He has called us. And see, I, I use the term I use the term calling and vocation interchangeably, and and that's why I, I would suggest we have multiple vocations that are necessary to function as God intended us to function for us to flourish. Mm. So, that, for example, um, you know, the person who, who say, is, is, you know, thriving academically but is losing their family at the same time is flourishing in one arena but not another. Mm. And I'd say the, you know, what's lacking at home more than offsets you know, what's being gained in another vocational sphere. Um, so that, I mean, I, I think, you know, look, looking at all of, the, all of the, the, the arenas of service that we are called to, and I think we're called to serve our own self-interest with rest and mm -hmm. Sabbath and things like that too. Um, I think we, we probably have n more narrowly looked at flourishing in terms of the measurable types of things we commonly look at for success. When in reality, I think that has to do with our own sense of personal well-being. I would maybe another summary term would be what the, what the Old Testament calls a sense of shalom, a sense of wholeness, what, uh, what, what uh, Plato called a justice in the soul, uh, which is all of the parts you know, working as they were originally mm. intended to function. Okay. Does that help? Yeah, no, that's okay. very, very uh, okay. helpful. Uh, we have time for one more. Yes. So being translated means it's, it's the last word, so you better make it good. Yeah. Um, I, I thought I'd ask you maybe to, to clarify a comment you made about the hierarchical perspective we have at the ministry. Pastors and clergy at the, at the top ministry. of the heap, and then sort of trickles down. Um, so I'm wondering where that originates. Um, and I'm thinking of a couple of passages, like Paul, for instance, in talking to Timothy, says that the pastor, the elder, is worthy of a double portion. Or, you know, the, the passage in Acts when um, Paul's leaving the Ephesian elders, and he says, you know, God has specifically tasked you um, as the spiritual shepherds. Right. And so I'm wondering how, how that squares, because I question. think we're trying yeah, to, uh, it's, it's, it seems to me difficult uh, waters to navigate, so we're, we're not wanting to minimize, the, which is a tendency right. particularly of Protestants yeah. over against and, Catholics. Yeah, and, and I don't, then please hear me right, I am not minimizing the pastorate, because I think, you know, if, 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 I would suggest mo most pastors could take a lot easier jobs, maybe like being neurosurgeons. Than what they what they're doing in the local church. So there, I think I think there's a nobility to the pastorate, 
as the representative of God's word in a community. But I think what Paul means there by the double honor award to those who make their living from preaching and teaching, the, the term there is a financial term. And it's not a value judgment, but a financial term. And I think the best renderings that I've seen, sort of the majority, is that it, it's, it best refers to a phrase like ample compensation. That they are, you know, if they make their living from the church, they're not, they're not to be, you know, they're not to be treated in a, you know, in a, a cheap and shabby way just because of the cause they're committed to. But that never happens today, right? Not, but I think that happens routinely today. Um, so I think that admonition is still necessary today. Um, and then I think the, the, the charge of the Ephesian elders, I think, was for their oversight of the church as a whole as elders. I'm not sure that nece- I'm not sure it was necessary that for all of them to have left their uh, their occupations uh, in order to do that. Uh, so I, I, don't, I guess I don't see those as mutually exclusive, nor in any sense hierarchical. It's just there was, it was a sobering responsibility to be elders. That's true. So um, I'm wondering if there's a tendency to sort of translate um, the specific authority that God invests as a value judgment in that's itself. A great, that's, that's a really good observation. I hadn't thought about it like that. Because um, I think there is, there is an authority to, I mean, I think the Presbyterians are right when they say they're ruling elders in the church. Um, and that, yeah, that, that's, a, that's, that's a really good observation that that authority has been translated to something of value, particularly, particularly if the, the elders are drawing their living from the church, which I think you can actually have. There are lots of churches that have ruling elders who are basically the pastoral staff. Um, so that's, that's a good observation. I appreciate that. That was well-deserving of the last word. That was the last word. That's pretty that good. I, have, I got one other thing. If, for those of you that want to stay, I've got about a five-minute video if you'd like to see it. We just ran out of time to do that. Feel free to you know, do whatever you need to do. But if you'd like to see that, I'll, I'd be glad to stick around and show it. Uh, it's uh, it's pr- particularly it's, it's the explanation for the hockey stick of economic growth. That's, that's a fairly creative presentation, but it shows how the importance of economics to our views of work and flourishing. That's great. So. Well, let's thank uh, Scott for his time. Thank you very much. Thank you, guys. And thank you once again for coming to the colloquium. Uh, I just do want to make a couple of notices. Number one, make sure you take a look at the book table. Uh, I just got word that one of our Ph.D. students, Aaron Coe, just came out with a, a book that he's... Um, co-authored, I think, with uh, Dustin Wilson, uh, published by Moody Press. And I forgot the name of the book now. It's something like Faith on Mission or something like this. So uh, just be uh, aware of that. We do have some new publications by faculty over there. Take a look at that. And uh, just a couple of other notices. Um, It looks like in the spring, Dan Block will be here. We may have, for those of you who are New Testament specialists or discourse analysis or discourse linguistics, uh, folks who are interested in those fields, uh, we may have Stephen Rungy here. So um, that could be very exciting, but it would be the same week that Dan is here with us. So you might get a, a, a double honor. That'd be nice. Okay. Thank you very much for coming, and we'll see you next time. Thank you. If you're interested, I... You know, I 
sort of purpose not to read a paper today, but if I have a copy of the whole paper, if you'd like a copy of that, we can make that available yeah, to you. So let yeah, just fine. let you know, be fine. Great. All right, okay. guys, thank you very much.